0: Hello and welcome to a new podcast in the Brexit and Beyond series of the UCL European Institute. I'm Anisha Jatakia, I'm a Brexit Research Intern at the European Institute and today I'm delighted to be joined by Ruth Steiger, the Co-Founder and Executive Director of the European Institute as well as Oliver Patel, European Institute's Manager. We're here today to talk about the ongoing coronavirus crisis and what this means for Brexit. I can confirm that we're all definitely self-isolating, but this might mean you may hear some background noise while we work from home. So, let's start with the questions. Where are we right now with Brexit negotiations? Okay, so as we all know, the UK left the European Union at the end of January, but we entered a transition period during which, obviously, EU law continues to apply, so nothing effectively has changed. Um, recall also that both sides sort of took about a month to agree and publish their different mandates. Um, And recall also that there are about 11 thematically structured negotiation teams or groups, and they treat different bits. They treat trades and goods and services, for example, transport, energy, fisheries, etc. Now, the talks are alternating between Brussels and London, and the idea had always been that each round of negotiations would be held every two to three weeks. So the first one got off to a good start, considering we had um, the round of talks in uh, Brussels in the first week of March. And at the time, Brexit was probably still uppermost in everyone's mind. Um, And Barnier The uh, chief negotiator for the EU side afterwards highlighted about four main areas of divergence, right? Um, And they are basically on number one level playing field provisions. So ensuring that the conditions under which we will trade will be uh, similar in kind. The role of the European Court of Justice and the European Convention of Human Rights is number two. So, the UK doesn't really at this point want to commit formally to continue applying the Convention. It doesn't also really want the court to play a role or key role in interpreting European law um, that also affects the uh, UK. So, these are two um, areas of divergence. A third was just governance how we're going to work all of this, how we're going to oversee all of this. And the fourth, quite um, predictably, is fisheries right so we had these four areas of negotiations that were showing up very very difficult um sort of starting positions but keep in mind it was the very first round of negotiations
1: so i yeah just just to add to that i think just to place the current situation in in the wider historical context brexit was initially supposed to happen on the 29th of march 2019 that was when the, the original two years of Article 50 were, were supposed to time out, and Theresa May was supposed to pass her withdrawal agreement. And then, un, under that scenario, there would have been, you know, approximately 18 months of a transition period to, to deal with the future relationship negotiations. Even at that time, a lot of analysts said, well, that's not going to be enough time. Fast forward a few months. Uh, Brexit happens on the 31st of January uh, 2020. And even without thinking about the impact of COVID-19, most trade experts, analysts, observers of the talks think, well, you know, eight, eight or nine months is not enough time to conduct these negotiations and complete them. And now the situation has been further complicated by, by the pandemic crisis, and the UK continues to insist on uh, there'll be no extension of the transition period and the talks will be uh, finished within this time period. So e- even before when there was a much longer transition or this length of transition that we have now without COVID, it was still always going to be very difficult for these, uh, these talks to be successfully concluded.
0: And obviously, as Ollie was pointing out here, um, it means uh, that we are looking at a situation in which we can't continue the negotiations. Now, the second round already, had to be cancelled. The the second round of talks was due to take place in London last week, between the 18th and the 20th of March. Um, You couldn't really make it up. Barnier has tested positive for COVID. Um, His counterpart on the UK side, David Frost, is self-isolating. So very clearly already, we're in a position where the talks have effectively stalled. Now, The UK has said it still expects to share, as it had wanted to do, a draft free trade agreement, sort of uh, among other draft legal texts. Is that still going to be realistic? Is that something that we can even expect them to do is, is the big question. So what does this mean for future negotiations? Effectively, we're trying to bundle up two massive crises of which one is still in the making and we still don't quite know how it's going to play out now you've got to remember brexit is going ahead regardless unless we explicitly either ask for an extension or find other ways of dealing with this we are leaving the transition period um, at the end of this year so some um, of the considerations were around timing so are there alternative means of resuming the negotiations video conferences for instance now, that's a possibility. But um, remote facilities are just different. Um, in negotiations, there is a personal relationship evolving. There are multiple exchanges that are taking place. That's part of how a dynamic of negotiation works. And it's particularly crucial, of course, where the timetable is quite you know, hard and tight. So um, the question is, is there going to be um, enough of that kind of capital going forward. A second um, issue to do with timing is, you know, is there any bandwidth? I mean, is there any capacity to focus on the negotiations? Some of the teams have already been withdrawn from the negotiations to focus on managing COVID. Um, So is on either side, even enough physical capacity there to, to take this on? That's one thing.
1: I think, we, yeah, the, the, the two issues there is the technological side of it. Can you actually conduct negotiations not in person? And then the bandwidth issue. I think it's potentially a little bit disingenuous for the British government to focus excessively on the technological issue. Everybody knows that it's technically possible to conduct negotiations, even if there are many different work streams and many different people involved. Of course, the technology exists to do this. No one would disagree with that. But it's the bandwidth. That's that's the real problem. You know, there's no capacity from um, EU member state governments or their political systems to put any attention towards these negotiations right now. And I think they they would argue that the deadline, the, the length of the transition period, it's an artificial thing. It's a legal fiction. It doesn't really matter how long the transition period goes on for it can be extended, it can be extended for up to two years. So the EU would argue there is absolutely no um, reason beyond the kind of domestic politics of the UK why it shouldn't be. And I think that if the UK doesn't ask for an extension, it's highly likely that the EU will, and then we could have a mini crisis over that if the UK refuses.
0: Okay, before we come to that even, I think there's another thing we need to throw into the mix and that's ratification. There was already quite a lot of concern about the timing if it is a so-called mixed agreement, then um, it is uh, technically important to have the deal signed by a national and possibly even regional
1: parties. Don't forget about the Walloons, yeah. They...
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, uh, but even if it was just a straightforward agreement without any mixed components in it, so that just the Commission could sign it off, I mean, how can the different parts even have the time to go through it and and even do this in in the current um, framework? Plus, um, I mean, just think about it. We just don't know um, where we're going to be after this. I mean, we've not seen anything like this before. We don't know what our societies are going to be like. You don't know what the economies are going to be like. Um, Obviously, it is hoped that we go back to where we've been before, but it is very likely that either it will take a long time or that there will be massive structural changes. Is it really good now to come to an agreement on a future relationship that has started from completely different parameters.
1: I think that the, the um, point about ratification is really important because the although the transition period ends on 31st of December 2020, that isn't actually the negotiations can't go up until that point. So there isn't actually that much time for negotiations realistically you would need at least a a couple of months to to do this right away. I I think it's highly likely that it it would be a mixed agreement and that you wouldn't need national parliaments to be involved. So I think the EU wouldn't accept a scenario where there was no extension and negotiations continued into into November, for example. This this isn't like last time. This isn't like Article 50, where you could have an infinite number of extension requests, and obviously the, the UK proved that it's something you could do again and again and again, and you could do them at the last minute. You have to request the extension to the transition period before the first of July of this year. Otherwise, it becomes very difficult to extend it. So it's way more complicated. The extension procedure is much less flexible than before. It can only be done once, and it has to be done in the next in the next few months. So I think it, I, I think that based on all of that, it's it's pretty plausible that there will be an extension in the end. Um, but we'll just have to see how that actually comes about.
0: That's the big question, isn't it? So we both expect, I suppose, from from what I've heard so far, that it is likely the UK will either ask or agree to an extension. However, it's it's important to have a quick look at what that entails. So on the one hand, you could argue there is a lot less public pressure. At the moment, there is actually a petition um, on on the Parliament's website that calls for an extension to the transition period. there was a similar petition uh, to revoke um, Article 50 before we actually left. And that letter petition, that had over 6 million people sign it. Now, um, we have fewer than, I think right now, it's about um, 12 or 13,000 calling for an extension. So there is, on the face of it, um, less public pressure. But I think it is, as Ollie pointed out earlier, because it is a very different kind of beast. We are out, you know, it's done. We have Brexited. And now it's a question of giving us the time to um, to work out a future relationship. Uh, so the big question is, is opposition inside the party and committed leavers enough to make the um, uh, government think? Is it also um, enough of a push at the moment to do what's required legally on the UK side, which is in fact opening withdrawal, the EU Withdrawal Agreement Act, which the UK um, had uh, written in to ensure that a uh, transition extension is unlawful. This is just legislation that you can change, but you would have to change it.
1: I think it's, yeah, just to add a bit of context to that, initially the, the, this this clause in the EU Withdrawal Agreement Bill as it was passing through Parliament was added in to basically fo- forbid a minister from agreeing to an extension to the transition period. So this this would count either way. Both forbids ministers from requesting the extension and also from agreeing to an extension which the EU requests. This was a totally sort of unnecessary provision which which was put in the bill to sort of strengthen Johnson's position with his uh, with his sort of Brexit supporting faction. It, it wasn't really necessary. It, the 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 UK didn't have to accept uh, an extension or, or request one anyway, so there was no need to make it unlawful. But because of that legislation, it is, it is technically unlawful. So despite the fact that under international law, i.e. the withdrawal agreement, there is a provision for an extension which can be requested by the side, in order for the UK to either request or um, approve an EU request for an extension, it has to amend the uh, EU Withdrawal Agreement Act which wouldn't be difficult. It wouldn't be difficult at all. Not with the majority that Johnson has, not with the, the context of the, of the coronavirus crisis. So I think that there, there might be a bit of a briefing and grandstanding, but in the end, I think that they will be able to amend, amend, this, amend this law so that an extension can be agreed. But I don't think it will happen anytime soon, despite some reports.
0: In fact, uh, that's an interesting question. I think it is possible that um, they will uh, wait until, uh, well, for another few weeks um, because, I mean, if you consider it in, a, in an instrumental way, in a few weeks things are going to be very difficult. Things are going to be heading towards the peak. So um, it will be much easier to mute any opposition to this um, and to sort of hide it among the measures that are going on when really the entire nation is focused on something completely different. Uh, the only thing you could say um, is that obviously one argument for extending um, would be to lessen the economic impact of all of this. But the economic impact from Covid is going to be so big that um, you could technically hide or sort of make less evident the outcomes of um, a Brexit um, specifically. Right. So that that would be another argument to say maybe they're considering um, and and not not extending. But really, I mean, the challenge is probably about when it's likely to be and for how long it's likely to be.
1: Yeah, I guess one potential if we if we sort of play devil's advocate and think, OK, what if what if there really isn't an extension? What happens then? It is plausible that the government um, just totally stands its ground, doesn't back down, doesn't agree to an extension, doesn't request one, and then so there there just isn't one. And then, you know, can can a deal actually be done? And you know, I, I guess then in theory something would still have to happen if, if the gut go- I mean, what what do you think, Ute? If the government totally refused to play ball on this, does the EU actually keep negotiating? Or could the you know, if the if, if the government refused to request the extension and then the EU uh, try to initiate a process whereby it requests an extension, and the government still refused as the pandemic was escalating across Europe. What do you think happens then politically? Is that just is it just game over for the negotiations?
0: Well, I think if one side um, decides to play hardball on this and really uh, go down the route of what will then effectively be no deal, there is no there's no real way of um, um, of avoiding that. Now, that is going to be the big question. Is the e- UK really likely to risk it at this point in time? Um, but if it did, obviously, legally, there was um, there wasn't very little the EU could do. Mm. What the EU could do, though, um, is, is do other sorts of actions. For instance, currently at the end of this year, you're also reaching the end of the current budget cycle, the multiannual financial framework. Currently, there is no agreement on the 27 existing member states about the next financial framework. Um, And that also makes it really difficult to determine how much the UK would still need to pay in if it, in an extended transition period, remained uh, a part of of this limbo, um, if you like. Now, the financial obligations would continue to be there. Then what the EU could technically do is that it just simply postpones the end of the current MFF, the current budget cycle, if you like, by another year, and everything gets carried over. Mm -hmm. That is going to be a headache on on all fronts, but it is a possibility. Um, And um, it would allow the UK to continue participating in all relevant EU programs, such as, for example, research funding, if it's so chosen.
1: That's interesting. So I think we both think that the UK, there will probably be an extension in the end. I don't think it's plausible that the EU doesn't want one. I don't think it's plausible that the EU has capacity or the will to continue conducting these negotiations at haste. So the only scenario in which there isn't an extension is where the UK refuses to back down, which probably leads to no deal. So just to be clear, that's what we think the main options are, either an extension or no deal.
0: Yes, but that's in, in, in simplistic terms. But that's always been the case. That's not mm. changed. That, and mm-hmm. in fact, it's sort of one of the bargaining chips the UK government has put in play again and again. I mean, they've ramped up No Deal preparations again, even before COVID struck, as a way of saying we really mean business, and if we don't get what we want, we're just going to walk out. So that's the question: is um, is there still credibility to such a claim? How has the EU responded to the coronavirus crisis? So I suppose the big question is, um, is it uh, is the EU response pulling the member states closer together or is it uh, is it driving up divisions on both sides? That's sort of on the EU side. I mean, we've seen uh, interesting developments here. The EU has tried to stay out of member states business. In some respects, it's eased the restrictions on state aid, for instance. Um, It has also quietly abandoned its fiscal rules. The European Central Bank said there is no limit to our commitment to the Eurozone. That was uh, Christine Lagarde's version of her predecessors. We'll do whatever it takes. So in some respects, it's signaled we're going to let member states do their thing, but we're backing it up with big funds. And you have seen also some um, work uh, developing where member states help each other out. So um, uh, patients in the Alsace regions of France being treated in neighbouring Baden-Württemberg, for example, delivery of masks being coordinated, generally coordinated procurement that is kicking in. So on the EU side, there seems to be a kind of closer... Poland together at this stage, although the big divisions are likely to come up um, afterwards when it comes to who is footing the bill for all of this.
1: I think the EU has potentially been a bit slow off the mark to really respond to this crisis in a holistic way. So there have been some helpful economic measures, but I think the EU isn't really seen as a sort of major player, basically, in the global response to this crisis. And that is part- partly because it has limited, um, you know, public health competences. It, it, it A lot of the relevant domains for, for responding to this crisis are with the member states. But, I mean, if you compare what China has done to the EU, China has made a massive effort in recent weeks to show that it's supporting countries in Europe with, with you know, real things. So, for example, um, a group of Chinese... Uh, doctors and medical staff recently landed in Serbia to a, to a welcome from the Serbian president Vucic, where he was clapping them and he like kissed the Chinese flag because China is sending support to Serbia. China also sent um, things like masks and ventilators and doctors to Italy before the EU could coordinate a response whereby they could support Italy. So it's interesting that China is able to help European countries quicker than the EU is. So I think that uh, the EU has started to do things now, but it was a bit slow off the mark.
0: I think that's right. I think it came in under a lot of uh, criticism. Partly that is because of its dynamic, of course. Um, th- the biggest decision-making um, uh, fora, obviously the European Parliament, the European Council, the Europe, the Council configurations, they represent also member states, well, particularly the Council and, and the European Council, at which point, um, you had a difficulty between different national responses mm-hmm. and how member states wanted to go um, uh, about uh, dealing with the crisis. So uh, the divisions have come in, and I think it's absolutely right that the EU hasn't um, played uh, as much of a role in the early response. Um, the interesting question will be how it develops now. Obviously, there's 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 two... Um, agencies or mechanisms which um the eu does have at its its disposal one is the european medical agency which is also among other things responsible for overseeing clinical trials for new vaccines and for medicines um, such as in the case of a pandemic Um, that includes issues such as marketing authorizations for example that apply across the eu now um the uk is no longer part of this so how does that affect um the UK's um, position going forward. We don't yet know because we don't yet have um, uh, the new vaccines um, in in place, but certainly one would think that the closer you work together on this, the better at this point in time. Um, And in fact, the UK has already withdrawn from the EU's emergency bulk buying mechanism, right? um, For vaccines and medicines. Um, And that might already be an issue when it comes to speeding up access to those
1: yeah so just a side point is that this crisis does really highlight how much power still rests with eu member states because the eu as a whole as as the eu the eu institutions have had a very limited role in responding to this crisis and we've seen member states follow very different paths so italy spain france Germany, all doing very different things with regards to when they've imposed lockdowns, what the nature of those lockdowns have been. Some countries have imposed border restrictions, like Poland, where people can't come into the country. So it's just kind of shown how much power still lies with the member states. And there there is a risk here that if the EU is seen as being ineffective at, at, at responding to the, sort of the biggest crisis, which has, which has faced the world for, you know, probably for as long as we can remember, all of us that are, you know, living memory... Then maybe that will, people might start to question the EU. What's the value of it? What's the use of it if it can't have, make a meaningful, positive response to this crisis? I'm not saying that that's definitely going to happen, but there is a risk there that the EU is, if not seen as um, damaging or causing issues, maybe seen as slightly irrelevant almost in the context of such a big crisis, especially as different countries are responding in different ways.
0: It's interesting, though. I'm not sure that it is entirely a ne- uh, such a negative reading that we can take from this, because uh, obviously, what usually is uh, the criticism levelled at the EU is that it tries to do too much. Um, actually, what it's shown is that it can let member states deal with their situations, which are different depending on 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 each case. It doesn't prescribe how it means means how they sorry how they meaning to act, um, and. Um, In fact, what it does do is that it it operates in the background, um, trying to coordinate additional resources, um, facilitating procurement, coordinating certain responses, providing a forum and providing um, money. So one could also say maybe it is developing. And in this case, less Europe isn't actually such a bad thing either.
1: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that it's not inherently a bad thing, that the EU's role is limited and that member states are, are are doing their own thing in this area. But there is a risk that if the EU isn't seen to be supporting the most vulnerable uh, states with this crisis, especially Italy, you know, in Italy, there's already quite high levels of Euroscepticism and uh, uh, obviously populist movements have been very successful in Italy. And um, so if, you know, th- th- this could just be another problem added on to what happened with the eurozone crisis and the perception that the EU wasn't helping Italy if this is if, if Italy really suffers over the next few months and, and the EU is ineffective at supporting it mm-hmm. then there is a risk of, of heightened euro skepticism but it does seem like the EU has started to take steps especially in the in the fiscal fiscal sense to to support Italy so we'll, we'll have to see how that pans out
0: we'll have to see I think even you can even take a further step backwards now we're entering quite hypothetical territory here but there is a question of how the um the system that we've relied on to keep our economies uh, going is hyper interdependence of these extraordinarily complicated supply and demand um, structures the supply chains the the, the entire uh, reliance on on so much um uh basically market forces is that Something the crisis shows up to be also a you know a, a point of weakness possibly, mm. and so how might that change the way the EU can operate going forward? It was already something thrown up through the Trump administration's increasing protectionist policies. Um, how is our interdependent world likely to to go? So I think in this respect, COVID is, if anything, going to um, to heighten those those tensions and challenges.
1: Yeah, I mean, the perverse irony is that many of the most um, extreme negative consequences that people were predicting that could happen because of Brexit, mainly no deal Brexit, some of those things are actually happening now, especially with regards to, um, you know, stockpiling, food shortages, problems with with supermarkets. So it it does, although that hasn't happened because of Brexit, it does show that these systems which we rely on are very fragile. So people were right to point out at the time that something like a no-deal Brexit, where you have a major disruption to supply chains, can have a big impact. And although a lot of those concerns are brushed away or laughed up, you're you're now seeing with COVID, it only took a couple of weeks of a crisis where the numbers were still at relatively low levels in the UK of people affected. And already things like toilet paper, hand sanitizer, and dried foods already ran out. And although the government and... Is assuring people that there is plenty of food in the supply chain of course it is extremely vulnerable if that supply chain is is uh, no longer interlinked with europe and we with I and mean, this was the, there were reports we don't know if they're true or not but there are reports that president macron sort of threatened boris johnson in a phone call saying if you don't impose tougher restrictions we're just going to stop movement between france and the uk so what would happen to the uk food supply chain in that scenario if you couldn't have lorries delivering food from europe so it, it, it is a it is a strange irony that many of the most extreme consequences of brexit didn't happen because of brexit but some of them are happening now because of the virus and they will actually um this this will all have an impact on brexit as we were discussing earlier
0: i think that's a great point to end on thank you both of you for your contributions and thank you for listening